Hey, Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, James from Bay Staters, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. Pleasure to host you today. How are things in Massachusetts today, James? They are bright and cheery and a little psychedelic as well. So thanks for having me, Dennis. Excited to chat. Most definitely. So I first scratched the surface of what Bay Staters is doing after interviewing our mutual friend, Roger from Mushroom Magic LLC, who spoke a little bit about some of the work you're doing. And I'm very curious to learn more about what the organization is all about, where you fit into this emerging psychedelic ecosystem and the mushroom renaissance. So let's start with the origin story. Why did you start Bay Staters and what do you hope to accomplish with the organization? So Bay Staters was a ragtag group of people who have been victimized by the war on drugs, lost loved ones to the war on drugs or just benefited from psychedelics in absolutely astounding ways, myself included. And during quarantine winter, when there was nothing to do and nowhere to go, the world was flattened by the ability to have these meetings over Zoom. And one day in the midst of having anxiety and struggling and seeing so many people around me struggling when psilocybin is there to help comfort people and work through trauma, I just decided to message some people I met on LinkedIn who were fellow enthusiasts in Massachusetts. And in an afternoon, I put together the logo, put together the name, and called a meeting called a Community Action Hour. And the rest is history from there because we just started emailing our stories of hope and our stories of how most, you know, losing loved ones to our local lawmakers relentlessly. And at first, they ignored us. Then they laughed at us. Then they actually met with us and saw how awesome and authentic we are and how committed we are to this issue. And before you know it, Somerville had become the first city in Massachusetts, not just to end all drug possession arrests for psychedelics and psychedelic plants, but possession of all controlled substances as well. And in the follow-up of our work, they no longer have a narcotics unit at all. And so from there, by word of mouth, we've just created a lot of positivity and community around decriminalization and opening up the network and the renaissance, so to speak, to everyone, not just a few companies. And I think that local grassroots political organization is so important. And it's something I want to talk about with you today, because there seems to be a big disconnect between a lot of the community and a lot of psychonauts and the legislative process and that local community governance of where these laws are getting written or where decriminalization is happening, where drug policy change is happening. So as legislation for a hopefully less prohibitive and punitive model of drug policy is currently being drafted in multiple states and internationally in at least several countries that I'm aware of, it does feel like there's a disconnect between a lot of people and these many advocates, you know, in the population at large for a more sensible and humane drug policy and the actual politicians and bureaucrats writing the legislation. And that's something I believe, as you just mentioned, you've had some success with. So I'm curious, is that a gap that you've also noticed at large? And how how does Bay Staters go about, other than cold emailing, 
helping this grassroots local and state level political change happen. So what are some of the blind spots or shortcomings that you've observed in this regard, this disconnect? And what are some of the actions that you've taken and that you hope to see taken on a more national level for psychonauts and drug policy reform advocates to actually have their voices and their perspectives heard by the people drafting the legislation? A lot of the people drafting legislation and writing rules about these sacred plants with histories that we don't even fathom from all around the world don't inhale, to use Bill Clinton's words. They don't interact with the medicine, and those that have still don't have a full grasp of it. I would say even in the advocacy community, we don't have the full vision of what the future could look like for the spiritual use of entheogens, for the joyful use of entheogens at concerts and in recreation that can still bring people tremendous amounts of pleasure that help kickstart their recovery in terms of mental health. And for us, we've just been dedicated to telling the truth that we have for ourselves, right? Because our stories matter. And it is data, it is science to say that someone has put cluster headaches in remission, or some of us have seen tremendous benefits for anxiety and depression that has been just crippling throughout our lives. And lawmakers are human, right? They also have these struggles. A lot of them across Massachusetts have used psilocybin. They just didn't think of it in a more joyful paradigm and how it can be used for community healing. And so when we connect with them and we're just authentic and brave, in fact, putting our own jobs at risk in many cases to do this work and advocacy in the early stages, we're just helping break down that stigma so that conversations can happen. And legalization is not created equally. So what I would say to your viewers and to everyone is just because a bill is legalization doesn't mean that it's the right option. In fact, working for the cannabis committee of the state legislature and working in politics professionally as my day job, I can tell you that these words are often used to co-op social movements and really hand off the reins of industry to a few big players that, for, in for instance, want a vertical monopoly on the distribution of MDMA. And what we have to be careful is to create a community that's healthy, that's happy, uh, that is spreading like a mycelium, so that whatever laws they end up writing are functionally going to be ignored if they're unjust. And I think that that's actually a really good model and approach to take, is we will push for laws that are reasonable and set at the appropriate standard to keep people safe. We do want the best laws possible. But if they set standards really high, like in Oregon, where they want you to have tens of thousands of dollars of training, making it inaccessible for a lot of people to afford and enter the industry, we're going to be well within our rights to just ignore those laws as long as we have a trusting community and a community that's not at each other's throats. So Baystaters teaches free grow trainings for everyone. We throw free parties for everyone. We throw uh, free integration trainings for everyone. I'm regularly on the phone with Amazon workers and old nanas that just want free advice on microdosing because our vision of the industry is one that has a million nodes and a mycelium that really brings people together who are from a similar spiritual fabric and that need each other rather than concentrating this industry in the hands of a few. And let's dive a little bit more into that chasm between prohibition and legalization with 
decriminalization somewhere in the middle. So of course, there's an increasing number of cities across the US that have decriminalized psilocybin mushrooms in the last two years, Denver, Oakland, Ann Arbor, Cambridge, et cetera, and Somerton. And uh, what are some of the benefits and potential drawbacks, if there are any, to decriminalization? Because that was something in California, where I'm from, SB 519 was highly controversial. And depending who you talk to, you know, there was a, a number of different perspectives about how the best way to decriminalize a substance or, you know, move towards a more sensible policy is. And what I've seen is you can't keep all the people happy all the time. And that's maybe just how it is. So you can make uh, hopefully more sensible moves forward in the right direction. So I just love to hear uh, is decriminalization just the first necessary step towards ultimately legalizing psilocybin mushrooms from your perspective and the industry around it? Or is there value in keeping them in this sort of legal gray area between prohibition and full legalization? It's a million dollar question, really a, a $10 billion a year question, Dennis. And my answer is that decriminalization is the necessary first step, is to create a culture where people understand that these medicines don't make the sky fall, right? Much like cannabis, psilocybin is a very, very safe substance compared to the pharmaceuticals that are regularly doled out, compared to alcohol, compared to the opiates like fentanyl that are cheaper than bottled water. And when you weigh all of the harms that existing drugs and our mental health crises are creating for our communities and our cities, even the most rudimentary cost-benefit analysis tells you that access to these plants is going to be transformative in many, many people's lives. Bills like SB 519, for example, we were one of the only groups to cover this, would actually keep it criminal for people who don't own private property to grow their own mushrooms. So slipped into this bill was a provision where you could only grow mushrooms if you own your own home, which is only about half of Californians, and you wouldn't be able to transport them off your property. So what that is, is industry and a few very key players that have greenwashed themselves as nonprofits or doing the Lord's work of the psychedelic renaissance, trying to establish a vertical monopoly because they know that psilocybin and they know that sassafras-derived substances made at home are competitive goods to what they're trying to market for tens of thousands of dollars at fancy retreat centers. So you have to be really careful uh, as a member of the psychonaut community, as a person who has benefited from psychedelics, that you're doing the research on the organization you're volunteering for. Is their ultimate goal to establish a retreat center? Retreat centers are great, but we also want to make sure that the people at the bottom, those living on their last dollar, are not criminalized for growing and possessing their own mushrooms. Because over half of Americans can't even afford a $500 expense, let alone, you know, a week-long stay at a New Hampshire retreat center or one in the, uh, the Everglades or you name it. So our goal as an organization is simply to educate people about the safe use and the best use of entheogens and end stigma about the entire drug war because we think it's all flawed and that these coalitions should work together for harm reduction more generally. And if we're able to get a legalization paradigm that meets our standards, we're willing to support it. And we will continuously present that paradigm so that we can kind of control the narrative and wrestle it back from the people that want to swoop in and just pass legalization bills that are really just efforts to establish vertical monopolies. No doubt. Yeah, I think that's extraordinarily sensible and well put. So thank you very much for the insight there, James. 
And I wanted to ask you, moving from the macro policy level more to the micro personal experience, how did you personally get sucked into the wild and wonderful world of mushrooms? And at what point did you decide to double down and create a public facing organization or get involved with base staters and be public facing with it? Because I think for a lot of us, we had these transformative momentous experiences that we carried with us, but it was kind of this like hush hush, you know, sort of under the rug uh, domain for a long time, you know, like I taught in public high schools and I had a couple friends who were teachers and of course my friends in the community, but like I had to sort of separate my public advocacy that I wanted to be, which I'm doing now, right? Speaking about my experiences and about kind of tracking the movement versus like, I didn't want to create a situation where I would be let go from my job because I'm publicly advocating for criminal substances and whatnot. And I think a lot of people wrestle with that dichotomy. So you mentioned the pandemic and the shutdown of all this stuff kind of, you know, forced a lot of people to be creative and maybe be more public facing and more overt about their advocacy, because we know that things need to change. And we feel like we have some answers about ways towards that, towards a more sensible and humane policy, not just for drugs, but just for in general, for, for life in general. And I think that um, the drug war is at the heart of a lot of that for a lot of people. So I'm just curious, like, when did you decide, how did you first get sucked into the mushroom universe? And when did you decide to kind of go public facing and create this advocacy organization around it? So my first foray into this advocacy actually came from the war on drugs more generally. Mushrooms I love and came later. So when I was about five years old, my family was nearly killed in a methamphetamine lab explosion in Kansas in the trailer park where I grew up, caught neighboring trailers on fire. We had to evacuate the park. And yet when I went off to big fancy university in New York City, kids were using Adderall pretty regularly to cram for tests, just a few molecules different than the methamphetamine that had nearly killed me when I was a kid. And so that taught me that drugs are already legal they're just legal for certain people, and they're legal for certain corporations to sell them to us. Certain people will always be able to afford a retreat to Jamaica or Costa Rica, right? But the folks that I'm out here to help most, and I think need the medicine the most and should be the priority, are those who are really living on their bottom dollar. I like to keep this picture where I have uh, Zoom calls of... Uh, of Journey, uh, who's a big inspiration for me to do this work as well. Uh, she's in Ohio with my extended family because uh, my family has really struggled with Jason, my brother, um, and heroin. Uh, Ohio was bombed by just the flood of heroin and fentanyl that came when they criminalized legal access to opiates that were being over-prescribed, of course. So the war on drugs is really personal for me. And mushrooms are really personal for me because when I was in Berkeley, California, doing activism and working for the city council there, a friend offered me mushrooms for the first time. I took them in a CVS parking lot on uh, Telegraph, um, oh, why am I? Shattuck Avenue, sorry, my bad. And uh, I just remember that night just finally opening up my heart to other people and walking to Berkeley's campus, which is already very psychedelic with the trees that have fingers reaching up to the sky and just seeing joy and happiness in so many people's faces as the water and the lights cascaded off the rain that had been left that night. And that ability to open up my heart to other people instead of being closed off was transformative in my life. And it opened me up to doing this more public facing advocacy because I think in the long run, in 10 or 20 years, 
And even now, people are going to be really thankful that there were people like yourself, like people in Bay Staters who were willing to take a career risk, willing to take, you know, backlash at family reunions to say, this is tremendously beneficial for a ton of people. So for me, I'm just thinking long run. I think that uh, all of these issues will be vindicated. And if they're not vindicated, you know, the world's going to be even more messed up anyway. So why worry about it? And that's why I'm really passionate about just getting people educated and involved in the politics. Because like you said earlier, a lot of people don't like politics. Politics is extremely toxic. Like I, I hate doing the political side of this. People are very, very toxic. Um, but if I can kind of have that, that thick skin for everyone else and make it easy for them to be adjacent to politics or informed enough to like have a bulwark against corporatization, that's what I'm here for is just use my talents, uh, to make some type of change because, you know, why, why live otherwise, you know, if not to make a difference for those you love. Sure. And coming from San Diego, you know, it is very conservative. I come from quite a conservative family, open-minded enough to travel internationally a lot. That really opened me up to a, a bunch of different perspectives and seeing how other people lived around the world, hosting exchange students, things like that. But when it comes to drugs, of course, there's still such a strong legacy stigma around it, which is something we talk about a lot. And like, I'm definitely still ostracized when I talk with certain family members about like, they don't understand why my fixation is placed where it is. But as you said, like a lot of people don't inhale, a lot of people don't have that experience. And it's really hard to communicate sort of how you feel, uh, especially when there's so many emotions involved in its family. And I know a lot of people go through this, but my question here is for a city like San Diego or for maybe another conservative place, a place that's not Santa Cruz, a place that's not Oakland, you know, if somebody was really passionate about trying to make a local level change and maybe getting the ball rolling on decriminalization, what are some actionable items or, or, or steps that they could take towards putting the best unified front and the ball in their court together to actually legislate some change and actually you know, get somebody's ear at the city council or wherever it needs to start? We'd just love to hear what you have to say about getting the ball rolling for, for a city or a town that wants to decriminalize drugs or has a small group of people who want to decriminalize, be it mushrooms or entheogens in general. Sure, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked because that's a really fun question. So being from a small town in Kansas that is blood red conservative, like we don't, I'm technically a registered Republican in Kansas because the only way to affect who even gets elected is to participate in the Republican primary. It is so dominated by conservatives in that area. And I went to church there. I grew up there. I have a lot of friends and loved ones there. And I had the opportunity to volunteer for a sheriff's campaign for an officer that grew up next door to me in the trailer park. And we ran on a platform of decriminalizing all drugs, not just entheogens. And I went door to door, just politely saying hi to my neighbors and saying, the opioid crisis is killing us. It's the number one cause of death for people under the age of 40. It costs our cities tremendous amounts of blood and treasure. Our first responders are burnt out showing up, seeing young kids, young as 15, you know, blue in the face, dying of an overdose. And so there is absolutely no excuse for us to be criminalizing substances. We should be implementing a public health first response. And that was really receptive and, and taken very, very well by the taxpayers 
notice the word taxpayers, of this blood-red conservative town. And my sheriff uh, candidate signs were right next to Trump signs in that 2016 election when I was home for college uh, campaigning. And that's because the war on drugs touches everyone, absolutely everyone. So my challenge to people who are very excited about psychedelics, as we should be, is that you can build coalitions with people who are doing the same work for harm reduction, for drug courts, uh, for these other types of criminal justice reforms that address the war on drugs more generally. Because when the Controlled Substances Act was implemented in 1971, it went after two groups of people. It went after black and brown Americans, but it also went after the left, hippies, those who opposed the Vietnam War. And it's going to take coalitions like that, people working together across the drug war, to win bigger prizes. So my challenge to those who believe psilocybin should be decriminalized is to actually broaden the envelope and focus on how you can reduce charges for possession of all controlled substances in your conservative city. Because what we found time and time again in Massachusetts is it makes our brand and our appeal more popular, uh, not less. If a lawmaker loves psychedelics, then they can lean in and talk about veterans to certain constituents that ask. If they care more about racial justice, they can lean into the angle that, you know, decriminalization reduces racial inequality in arrests by nearly 95%. And so when you have a bigger coalition, not everyone's going to agree on everything, but you have more power because we just have to face facts that I think maybe three to 5% of Americans have tried psychedelics and, you know, a certain portion of them probably didn't even enjoy the experience. They're not going to be advocates. So being the 3% we are, we need to work with other drug policy advocates too. We need to work with our therapists who believe in a more traditional and conventional model for mental health. We need to make those alliances with existing advocacy movements and just, you know, lay out the case that psilocybin is tremendously useful for opiate use disorder, for example, uh, 55% reduced risk, according to a recent study that was done in Canada, a 40% reduced risk on a study that was done of 44,000 Americans in the United States. So it sounds, it sounds uh, counterintuitive based on how a lot of groups talk about change, but we actually need to broaden the agenda to bring in more stakeholders and make ourselves more powerful. Sure. And in terms of broadening that agenda, a lot of the organization such as Bay Staters and what I've been doing with the podcast really has benefited a lot from these, uh, the flattening of the world, as you mentioned, and the online Zoom meetings and the ability to connect. And I know that social media has played a huge role because so many people are on it. I'm like, I've met so many people through Instagram and you know through TikTok and Facebook and things like that. But now we're sort of collectively facing this issue of censorship. And that's something I wanna talk about a little bit because, you know, Sure, if you live in San Francisco and you can go to the San Francisco Psychedelic Society meetings or Portland, like you have that cut out for you. But for a lot of people, they need that sort of outlet and they need to kind of be able to connect digitally with people. So I just wonder, like, how has Bay Staters navigated this increasing issue of censorship where we've been seeing professional, honest, hardworking people who are really powerful representatives of the plant medicine movement and entheogen movement who are being deplatformed and who are being censored. And I just had a conversation 
today with someone who's a former guest of the podcast. I'm like, you've been really quiet lately. He's like, yeah, like I've had to really dwindle, you know, I've had to whittle down what I'm doing online because uh, I'm, I've had my Instagram account disabled, my account disabled. So is that something that you've really spent any time thinking about? And uh, what are some, you know, insights or possible ideas you have for how to build and organize psychedelic community and, you know, pro psychedelic, pro drug reform community, et cetera, in the face of this rising tide of censorship. And one last addendum I'll put on there is that on TikTok, if you try to put the hashtag psychedelic, it doesn't exist. And if that's not censorship, I don't know what is. Psychedelic literally means mind manifesting, I believe in the Greek or the Latin root. And it's just fascinating to me that you have this, you know, massive rising agenda item that people are talking about all over the planet. And like, if you're a huge company, vert vertically integrated company, you seem to have no problem marketing your services or whatnot. But when people are trying to organize and build community, there, there doesn't even exist the hashtag psychedelic. It's like completely off limits. So we'd just love to hear some thoughts that you might have about um, the collision between this, you know, interest and pro um, people first, more humane drug policy with the countering of uh, censorship that's happening. Sure. So you're absolutely right that we need to flatten the world and be able to provide community to people online because when it's done right, it's really, really beautiful. So in our weekly meetings, which we postponed for the summer, frankly, because I needed a break as an organizer, you can't pour from a cup that is empty. In our weekly Thursday meetings, we have people really authentically share who they are for the first half of the meeting. It's not about politics. It's not about all this complicated jargon about how to take action. It's people introducing themselves and listening to each other. Actually, ask people not to come if they're going to be, you know, also kind of distracted, taken care of other business on their guitar, because I want people to be able to actually listen to each other and connect and be authentic about who they are, because it's at the core of how we've achieved any change with these counselors, too. It's just being very honest about why we care, because people want to know your why, not a bunch of data and statistics. So you mentioned censorship on Instagram and social media. I think it's a badge of honor in the psychedelic movement. If you've had your page removed, we've had it removed several times. Uh, we face bizarre instances where we can't post video or we can't comment on anything. And I think a lot of it actually comes down to random people that are base daters, haters for one reason or another that report our posts. Uh, so we've been critical of Combo uh, for its uh, animal implications, the implications for frogs. We've been critical of Bufo for its implications there as well. Uh, we've been critical of the pharmaceutical industry and its relationship to more mainstream nonprofits uh, that are really for profits masquerading as nonprofits. And it doesn't win you, uh, it, it wins you enemies. And I say win because if you're not, if you're not challenging power, you're not really doing much at all. Right. And that has led to censorship on social media. Dennis, I, I think the answer there is to be really deliberate about getting to know your own neighbors and getting to know people in a way that has nothing to do with psychedelics in your own community. Go out and volunteer for uh, other issues you care about. And then once people know you and like you, mention, hey, psilocybin mushrooms also changed my life. Because I think in a lot of advocacy movements, you lead with, you know, the controversial issue you should really kind of get to know people and be a fabric and great member of your community in other ways too, because that normalizes the more, you know, fringe idea, so to speak. So for us, social media has kind of taken uh, 
a back seat, so to speak, uh, as we've really focused on just the in-person organizing parties, uh, personal connections, uh, because social media, like the video you made today, just demands that you constantly produce more and more and more content that's going to get largely censored or derailed anyway. We never use hashtags like psychedelics or mushrooms. We actually hashtag cities. We found that that benefits more people and gets a larger scope. So we actually don't even hashtag cannabis or any of that. We avoid drug words in our posts actually entirely. And it seems to work pretty well. In terms of censorship more generally, I think this deserves to be touched on. When we first decriminalized Somerville, which was a very big deal, Rolling Stone covered it, but refused to mention Bay Staters. We wrote that resolution. We put thousands of hours of work into passing it. And yet Rolling Stone, because of its association with writers at Double Blind and their association with many people at the Maps Corporation, have refused to mention Bay Staters in that article. In fact, the, the author, after we politely, like, DM'd him on Twitter to ask that we be covered after we had city councilors reach out, blocked us on Twitter. And we have seen this reoccur throughout the psychedelic space. So if I'm going to be frank, Dennis, a lot of these psychedelic news outlets are on the dole of industry or they're on the dole of somebody or they're setting themselves up to where they have access to those people for interviews, for content, by not challenging them. And I think it's a disservice to having really good conversations about where drug policy should go, because we've had almost 700 volunteers email and call in support of our state bill that would be go further than any other bill in history of the United States to ending the entire war on drugs and really legalizing production of all controlled substances through our universities. But a lot of people haven't heard about it because the only outlet that covered it was Marijuana Moment. 700 people is pretty unprecedented. The same way with Boston, we've had nearly 3,000 Bostonians contact the city council, call, email. They didn't get that much emails or calls at the height of George Floyd's murder and the, the racial reckoning that we had after that. So our organizing capacity simply is being deplatformed very, very intentionally in the psychedelic space. And I think to some degree by local politicians that just don't want to have to do anything about it. And they know that this could be set up to be a vertical monopoly. And so, you know, they want those donations. They want that network because uh, the ghouls that are setting up that type of system, like in Oregon, they're very well connected politically. They went to the same law schools uh, as politicians. Uh, they've kissed their butts and do that whole whole uh, rigmarole they need to do. Uh, but we're just out here educating people and they can't stop us from doing that. They can't stop me from shoveling snow for my neighbor, getting to know them. And then they meet people at my party whose lives have been changed by psychedelics. You know, you can't stop that mycelium. Uh, and the revolution, frankly, is never going to be televised anyway. Uh, some of the most incredible social movements in history are very intentionally deplatformed. And so keep the faith, uh, keep creating awesome content, and also just don't forget to, like you are, create those connections in person too, because it's something that social media and websites and, and that simply can't recreate. 
that's one of the things I prize about this platform is being totally independent and kind of, you know, letting ideas compete against each other because I have seen that hierarchical setup and where it's going. You know, I've been to a number of these sort of emerging industry events over the last two years and whatnot. And uh, I'm just kind of positioning myself as sort of the, um, the old man on the mountain who's just like observing with a detached curiosity and making, you know, cultural comments and observations. And I'm, I'm having a lot of fun doing that. So I'd love to hear what's coming next for base daters. You mentioned you sort of pared it down over the summer. And if people want to get involved and want to connect with that, like what is the next chapter of base daters whenever your cup is full again and you're ready to pour out? What does that look like for you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've gone to a lot of concerts and uh, got a lot of guitar out of my system this summer. So we're excited uh, this fall to launch our facilitator network because we have a ton of very caring and humane people that might not have master's degrees. They might, you know, come from backgrounds where they don't even have a high school education, but we have the ability to ensure that they have a background check to make sure they're not going to be a creep, that they have CPR and basic first aid training so they know how to respond to emergencies if one should arise, and that they're going to be really, really compassionate people, right? That they're in this for the right reason, that they want to be a trip sitter, someone that brings you water, someone that brings you blankets, someone that helps adjust the lighting, someone who says mantras to you and helps you prepare mentally for how intense a psychedelic experience can be. And we're going to launch that facilitator network with loopholes in the gray area of where psilocybin stands under Massachusetts law. There's nothing illegal about sitting on a couch with someone else. And so we're going to be the change we want to see in the world and create the facilitator network to show our lawmakers, if they try to do something a lot more crony on behalf of these on this nonprofit industrial complex that wants to set it up to be a monopoly and very expensive, we're going to show them that 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 model is obsolete, that our model is just simply better. And because it's not illegal to sit with people while they choose to consume a substance, as long as there's enough liability protection built in to that system, it's really exciting to see what we can just prove in practice. Instead of just talking the talk, we're going to walk the walk. And so that's something to look forward to. Uh, we have online trainings. All of our online trainings are free. So if you go to baystatersnm.org, you can find our trainings and uh, how to grow mushrooms, how to be an integration guide for your friends, for yourself, for others. And we also do political organizer training. So if you're interested in being an advocate, and kicking ass and taking names on your local level, uh, you know, reach out to us on the Bay Staters Instagram page or on Facebook because we will create the tools for you for free. Um, a win for justice anywhere is a win for justice everywhere, to invert Martin Luther King Jr.'s words. And the more cities and the more places we have where this mycelium is being built, where people are being genuine instead of just committed to being the first to legalize or you know, getting all the credit, the more we have authentic people standing up and just speaking truth to power, the better off we're going to be in this emerging industry. Now, speaking of truth to power, I saw that Rage Against the Machine just kicked off their most recent concert tour after a few years of not playing together. And, you know, they're a great band for this moment in American history, as they always have been. You mentioned you've been to a bunch of concerts and played guitar. That's something that moved me to my core from my first psilocybin mushroom experience was 
music. You know, I saw Ozo Motley play a live concert when I was 17 on a half eighth of mushrooms at the San Diego County Fair when the sun was setting. And it, it catapulted me into an ecstatic experience. And from there, I just have always had music be an integral part of my psychedelic journeys. And, you know, I saw the Flaming Lips last summer on Two Grams of Mushrooms, and that was a absolutely ecstatic experience. I've been fortunate to see Tom York and Radiohead a few times under the influence of psilocybin mushrooms. And like those guys changed my life in every imaginable capacity. I could go on and on. Kronos Quartet, you know, I came to a point where like I found that functional dose for me of like I'm pretty extremely functional. You know, if I take a half eighth or two grams or whatever, anything more than that, I start engaging people I don't know in ridiculous conversations. But like I found that sweet spot where I just it works for me. And I certainly don't advocate it for everyone. I say like, you know, kind of learn your boundaries and like, you know, get to know how you react to these types of environments and situations and whatnot. But uh, psychedelics and music has just been such a crossroads for so many people for so long. I'd love to talk music for a second. Like who are some of your uh, who are some of the artists who have influenced and inspired you in your development? Uh, we'll start there. Like, who are some of your favorite artists? Sure, absolutely. So I'm a little biased right now because I fell in love with my girlfriend uh, about a month ago. I mean, it was a process, but we were at a Metallica concert with a little bit of MDA and a little bit of mushrooms uh, just to really catalyze the experience and make Glass Animals, uh, all of these bands just really come to life. And Boston is notorious for being kind of a boring scene in a way because people are, you know, they got their Bruins hat on. They think like even swaying to the music is kind of gay. Like that's kind of the attitude that was brought to Boston calling this giant festival where we spent way too much money on tickets. But we were maybe like one percent of the crowd that was actually dancing to the music. And, you know, I dance with or without psychedelics, but I'm, I'm just biased. Like I, I freaking love uh, I fucking love Rage. Uh, they're awesome. Uh, fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. Uh, if you tell me not to do psychedelics, I'm going to because they're awesome. And uh, Tame Impala. Uh, we just saw uh, Lime Cordial, who they were fucking awesome. Uh, had the had the crowd roaring here in Boston. I guess I really love MGMT because the first time I ever had cannabis with my best friend in high school, uh, we were. We were eating this edible cheese. I don't eat cheese anymore, but uh, we came up to this song called The Youth by MGMT. And it was just, we were just howling on the on the ground and giggles. It was a lot of fun. So I like a lot of indie. I like a lot of rock. And I, being from Kansas, I even like some country. I, I really like all kinds of music, but definitely rock and indie is what gets my heart afloat. Hell yeah. Well, speaking of Metallica, We've got a friend of the program who has a mushroom farm in Copenhagen. He's a California transplant. It's called Funga Farm off the top of my head. And Lars Ulrich just visited the farm. He's the Metallica drummer. You know, music for me really moves the needle forward. Like I collect vinyl and I go to concerts as often as possible. Just yesterday I had some friends over and just bust out the guitars and play. I'm all about it, man. So that's super cool. I've definitely seen MGMT in concert before and haven't seen Metallica, but you know, as a San Francisco band, they have a special place in my heart. I spent numerous years in that music community. Cool, man. Well, we're kind of hitting the sweet spot of where I like to wrap up with the podcast. But before we let you go today, I want to ask if you have a 
anything you want to promote about what's coming up, what people can get involved with, you know, of course, I'll tag you on all the socials when the podcast gets turned around. But is there anything in particular you want to promote? And do you have any parting shots for the audience? Cut out toxic people. Just have fun doing your advocacy and you can't go wrong because there's going to be a lot of people who shit on you, you know, your family members who criticize you. Just be the most authentic and happy version of yourself. Find your passion in life and go for it because you won't have any regrets. You really won't. The biggest regret you'll have in life is the risk you didn't take. So thanks for having me, Dennis. And uh, I'm here to promote psychedelics. So follow us on Bay Staters and get involved because we're here to make sure every rock star and every person starts growing their own mushrooms because then the industry can't stop us if we're truly a mycelium and community that cares. Que onda, my friends. Gotta refresh the outro too. So what'd you think of this episode? Drop us a line. Hit the DMs on Instagram at Michaelpreneur Podcast or dare I say TikTok. Yes, we've been engaging in TikTokery as of late. And while I have your attention, Ego Death Magazine is actively soliciting content submissions and recurring contributor roles. Just take a look at the type of content exhibited thus far at www.egodeathmagazine.com to get an idea of what sort of materials we are looking to platform. So don't be a stranger. Bridges, not borders, baby. All right, you take care of yourself now. I'll be seeing you around. Ciao, au revoir, sayonara, and adios, motherfuckers. Thank you.